Father, um, I would suggest that there's not a person standing here this morning who could not sing that with, with utter conviction. That uh, even in the midst of difficulty, we have seen goodness. That even in the midst of difficulty, we know that it is a, a righteous hand that disciplines us. You have been good, O oh God. You have been faithful. And we, uh, we glory to sing such truths and pray that you will hear from the depths of our hearts that we are a grateful people, a people who understand that the goodness that there is in this world is goodness that has been derived from your very nature and character. And I pray, Father, that as, as children of yours that we might reflect uh, that rich goodness to a world that so rarely sees it, might we be agents of, of communicating the goodness and the faithfulness of God to our culture. Father, uh, I do want to pray for our, our nation. I pray for the leadership, the, the transition that is facing us in the next few months. I pray that you will lead this populace and into a sane and righteous decision, whatever that decision is. And I pray that you will guide them as we choose a new leader for our country. Might that man uh, be put in office that is your choice. And we pray that you will give us wisdom as to know what choice is yours. Lord God, we continue to pray for families stricken with, with great disease. Uh, and I pray that you will guard them that you will keep them and that you will allow them to avoid the kind of despair that comes with physical ailment. Oh God, undergird them in the midst of this very difficult time. Father, we continue to pray for the leadership of Gracie Van and pray that you will guide those men as we make decisions concerning the future of our church. We thank you for the, the way that you have demonstrated your, your will um, in our upcoming building project and pray that all of that's done there will be done for one reason and that not having to do anything with men. I pray, O oh God, that rich glory might be seen by people all around us as this congregation moves into this century further. Lord, thank you for generous people. I thank you that you have prompted them to, uh, to respond to you. And I pray that more and more you will be raising up people who understand that our financial future is better off in your hands than it is in ours. We commit ourselves to that with these gifts might they be used for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and that only. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Chapter of the book of Isaiah. That, of course, is in the Old Testament, so it might take you a minute. Um, in fact, I'm going to ask you to do double time this morning. If you will find that, and then find the book of Galatians, which is in the New Testament. Uh, and we're going to read one verse out of, the, of Galatians 1. Galatians, of course, comes right after 2 Corinthians. First and 2 Corinthians, Galatians. First, let's start with, 
Well, before I read, let me um, remind you what I'm up to this summer. Uh, we've stuck this in your bulletin on several occasions, and um, hoping that you will hold on to one of these. We didn't do it this morning because we've done it so frequently. But this is a list of the core values of Gracie Van, things that are important around here. In fact, the summer series has been entitled, What's Important Around Here? Well, these are the six things that are important around here. And we have done five of them. Well, we've done four of them. Richard's going to do one uh, in, on small groups in August. But um, this morning we come to really number two, the lofty view of God. Um, very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to spend three weeks, and, and I saved it uh, or scheduled it for now so that I could have three uninterrupted weeks on the lofty view of God. So that's what we want to talk to you about this morning, a core value which we call a lofty view of God. Let me read to you now. Beginning at verse 8, uh, in Isaiah 30, follow as I read. By the way, um, you're going to have to cut me some slack this morning. I have an inner ear problem. If I'm speaking too loudly, just, no, don't, 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 don't tell me. Uh, just, just kind of tolerate. I'm, I'm kind of imbalanced with it, but I'm getting it fixed tomorrow, Lord willing. So here we go, Isaiah chapter 30, beginning at verse 8. Now go, write it before them on a tablet, and note it on a scroll, that it may be for time to come forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Now if you'll flip to the Galatians passage. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul asks his audience, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. You, uh, you might be wondering, why on earth did I append Galatians chapter 1, verse 10 onto the end of our text, which is really in the Isaiah 8 through 11 portion? L let me explain why. Paul was a consummate pastor and preacher. You see that throughout his letters that are contained in the New Testament. Um, and you'll notice in this verse, Galatians 1, 10, that Paul apparently faced, uh, if not the same situation, certainly a similar situation to that of Isaiah's. Uh, here's an Old Testament prophet, and here's a New Testament apostle who are uh, trying to um, represent God aright, and in the course of their so doing, um, both of these men 
I don't know how many there were, had a few or perhaps there were many, who pressed on them, who, who sought to influence them in such a way that the message that they preached would be changed. Uh, they hear what Paul is saying, they hear what Isaiah is saying, and they say, um, by the way, Paul, we don't like what you're saying. Could you change it some? And of course, saying the same thing to Isaiah. And in Isaiah's case, the attempt is blatant, overt. You, um, you must see that uh, in Paul's case, the attempt is somewhat implied by his statement in verse 10. He's, he's saying, what, what, what am I trying to do now? Please you? But over in the case of Isaiah, you, um, you get a group of people that are overtly seeking to change what Isaiah preaches. Look at the text with me, ladies and gentlemen, beginning at verse 8. It begins in verse 8 with God saying to his prophet, I want you to go write something down. I want you to make it permanent. Notice that it may be for time to come, forever and ever. It begins with God telling Isaiah that there's something he wanted Isaiah to do, to say, to write in permanent ink. And you'll notice at the end of verse 8, at least in my translation, there is a colon. So this is what God wants Isaiah to say. And you will notice that as we go further in that text, the substance of what God wanted him to say was aimed at a certain group of people. And that group of people is described in our text this morning. They are described in verse 9 as a rebellious people. Lying children. Uh, they're rebellious, they're lying. And notice, children who will not hear the, the law of the Lord. People who are refusing to listen to what Isaiah or God is saying through Isaiah. And then in verse 10, God gives us another piece of descriptive information about these people. They are people who are pressing on Isaiah, um, who say to the seers, who say to the prophets, do not prophesy to us. Do not preach to us right things. We don't want to hear that. Speak to us smooth things. Deceive us, but don't preach that. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path, Isaiah. And then the text goes on to give us one specific thing that Isaiah's audience really hated to hear. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. We don't want to, in general, we want you to stop preaching those things. Uh, give us smooth things. The, NIV, oh, the New American Standard says pleasant things. Speak to us about positive things, Isaiah. Uh, comfort us. Uh, tell us about positive, uh, smooth, comforting things. Don't tell us about those other things. And the one thing that we really want you to stop telling us, cause to cease from our hearing, don't tell us anymore. 
about the existence of a holy God. We don't want to hear it. You can tell us a lot of things. You know, and it's interesting to me um, why they picked on holy. Why didn't they say, stop telling us about the omnipotent God? Or stop telling us about the righteous God? No, no, no. The one thing in specifics that they did not want to hear any more about is that God is holy. Why? Why do you think they so hated that? Well, that's a theme that for them was intolerable. Why? Well, folks, it really is easy to answer. Um, it's, if you know what the definition of holiness is, then you know why they wanted Isaiah to stop preaching it. Holiness is the one word that summarizes the nature of God the best. If I were to ask you to summarize God in one word, many of you would use the word love. And you would be wrong. Because the one word that summarizes God's nature and character the best is his holiness. Holiness, folks, is the word that depicts him as being altogether other. You know, that's a, that's a term that Immanuel Kant used, but it's a good term. God being altogether other. The word that says that he is altogether other is, is this word holy. You see, holy describes him as being without sin. Holiness is the thing, that the thing that we can say about God that sets him apart from all of creation. In fact, in one instance in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, the prophet says, Your eyes are too holy to even look upon iniquity. That is, that God, because of who, who he is, because of his holiness, cannot tolerate sin in his presence. His eyes are too holy to even gaze upon sin. I want to show you a story that I hope will illustrate my point. I'm not sure it will, but we'll try. Turn with me, if you can, uh, if you will, to 1 Samuel 6. We are jumping around in this book this morning, aren't we? This is a story that really begins... Oh, it really begins in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel 6, but let me just rush through it. Um, the Philistines and the Israelites were in a war, and uh, the Israelites lost, and they lost bad. And, and that's when Hophni and Phinehas were killed, and Eli falls over, breaks his neck, and he dies, and his daughter-in-law bears a child, you remember, and she names him Ichabod, uh, which is a term that means the, the glory is gone. And she's referring to the fact, not that the, the armies of Israel have lost, She's referring to the fact that in the midst of that battle, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. The, the uh, Israeli army, or the, Israel army, uh, the armies of Israel, thought that if they could bring the Ark of the Covenant onto the battlefield, that would assure them a victory. They were wrong. They lost, and the Philistines end up with the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that thing that Indiana Jones was looking for? Well, that's the thing. Well, um... 
the Philistines take it over to their place. And they set it up in the temple of their god, Dagon. And they come back the next morning, and Dagon has fallen on his face in the front of the Ark of the Covenant. Kind of embarrassing. So they set Dagon back up and, you know, kind of super glue him to the, to the pedestal. And then they come back the next morning, and lo and behold, Dagon has fallen again. And this time, his arms are broken off at the, at, at the shoulders, and his head is broken off. And so the priests of Dagon get the message. We've got to get this thing out of here. So they send it to another Philistine city. Um, and in that Philistine city, a, a plague breaks out. The, uh, <laughs> the New King James calls it tumors. Other translations, such as the King James, I believe, call it hemorrhoids. Not only that, their cities are overrun with rats. And so the Philistines finally get the message, we got to get rid of this thing. We shouldn't have it in our possession. And so they, they cook up a scheme to get it back to Israel. And they put it on this cart, you know, and, and they say, well, if it goes that way towards Israel, we'll know that God is in this. If it goes another way, we'll know that we've been fooled. But sure enough, these two milk cows take the, the Ark of the Covenant right toward Beth Shemesh, which is a border city. It was always being fought over. But Beth Shemesh was in Israel. And so, of course, Israel is delighted to have the Ark of the Covenant back. Now, I'm in 1 Samuel 6. You know, if you've got your Bible's like mine. It says, the ark returned to Israel. But then when it gets to Beth Shemesh, which is Israel, something terrible happens. Look at verse 19 of chapter 6. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Now, here's what I want you to see. Verse 20. And the, uh, and the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able? Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? The, the Gentiles couldn't, not the Philistines, but even over in Israel... They made the mistake of opening the ark. They shouldn't have done that. The Germans should have figured that out from this passage. But they shouldn't have looked inside. And because they looked inside, there was a judgment that fell upon them that was worse than fell upon the Philistines. So much so that the, that the men of Israel cry out, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? Who is able to enter His presence? And do you know the answer to that question? Nobody. Nobody is able to stand in His presence. Why? Because He's holy. And his eyes are too holy to even look upon iniquity. And I'm suggesting to you, ladies and gentlemen, that that is the message that was so offensive to the audience of Isaiah. That was the message that was so offensive to Paul's audience. The, the, the idea that men want to desperately make God like them 
so um, I, I don't want to hear this business about him being altogether other because I know what I'm like and if you're telling me that he's like that then obviously I will never be able to stand in his presence so here's their, here's their solution don't tell me about that anymore stop speaking about that give us slow things we don't want to hear any more of this business about uh, holiness because if he's not that, then I'll be just fine. But if he is that, I'm not fine. And I don't want to hear any more about this nature of God being such that nobody, nobody is able to stand in his presence. I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that today's preachers, of which I happen to be one, we're faced with the same pressure, the same pressure that Paul got, the same pressure that Isaiah got. That pressure big changed the message. Whittle off the, the sharp edges. That's not what we want to hear. Speak to us smooth things. Tell me how to run my Hewlett-Packard computer. Tell me how to manage stress, which is the message I need to hear. Tell me how to do this or that or the other, but don't speak to us anymore about the fact that God is altogether other. Because if that's true, I've got a huge problem. So tone down that message. Gang, um, when we say around here that we want to present to you a lofty view of God, let me tell you the essence of what we mean. The essence of what we're saying is, is that God is holy. I guess perhaps the loftiest thing that you can say about God is that he's holy. And, and if I could insert this at this point, there's a great pressure on the pulpit of every church to tone down that message. Change that message, soften it. Don't keep telling me that only Christ equips a man to stand in the presence of God. But ladies and gentlemen, I say to you, nothing could be so unfaithful to you. Nothing could be so unkind, so unloving to you than telling you that God will accept you based on your own merit. He will not. He will not and he cannot. He cannot. Because he is holy. And the only ones who can stand in his presence is Christ. And then all those who are clinging to that Christ, all those hidden in Christ, holding on to Christ, identified with Christ, embracing Christ, trusting Christ, those are the only ones that will ever be able to stand in his presence.
Christ and his people. Now, as I close this morning, I got about another nine minutes. And we'll do this fast. But the one thing I want to leave you with is a presentation and defense that indeed God is holy. I have 11 pieces of argument that I want to present to you, which I've really done before here. But 11 things that I want to leave behind that I hope will convince every listener that God is holy. And because He is, ladies and gentlemen, if we grasp the fact that God is holy, it will change everything we do. It will change the way we pray. It will change the way we worship. It will change the way we obey and live. And that's why we want to present to you around here a lofty view of God. Let me do this quickly. I have three negatives and eight positives. But the three negatives are really designed to overturn this idea that the one word that best summarizes God is love. That's not true, ladies and gentlemen. That's not true. Now, is God love? Of course he is. But that's not the best word to summarize his nature. Three quick arguments in maybe silencing that. Here we go. Number one, God has never, not once in the entire Bible, addressed by men or angels or devils under any circumstances, whether in praise or in adoration or in petition. He has never once addressed as love or loving. Not once. By anybody, at any time, under any circumstances. He is addressed as holy and he is addressed as righteous, but never loving. Number two, the book of Acts is a book that you know records for us the early beginnings of the Christian church as she begins her assault on her pagan culture. That's the earliest record of the history of the church that we have. And I think you will agree that that church is probably far purer than is our church. The further we move away from that apostolic church, the more that enters in. Well, ladies and gentlemen, in the book of Acts, we have recorded for us several sermons. One by, uh, a couple by Paul, one by Stephen, one by Peter. Uh, several men preach their sermons in the book of Acts, and they're recorded for us. Never once in those sermons is the love of God used as a theme for these apostolic preachers. Not once. In fact, in those sermons recorded for us in the book of Acts... The love of God is never mentioned in those sermons. In fact, the word love is not found at all in the book of Acts. Now, you can choose preaching like Paul or Peter, or you can preach like somebody else. But for my money, don't you, wouldn't you agree that it would be better to preach like those guys? Number three, a, a third argument against the word love being the best summary. Please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that God is not love. I'm just saying that that's not the best summary. Number three, God reveals himself through the use of names, as you know. There are several names that are recorded for the, in the Old Testament that give us an idea about what God is like. El Shaddai, El Roi, uh, uh, Elohim. Those are names, and those names mean things that communicate God's character. God exposes himself by giving himself names. Not once does God ever say, I, the Lord thy God, am a loving God. 
He does say, I, the Lord thy God, am a merciful God, a faithful God, a righteous God, a jealous God. But never, never does he address himself. Never does he describe himself by saying, I, the Lord thy God, am a loving God. Now, I hope you got my point. I'm simply trying to tell you that the one word that best summarizes the nature of God is his holiness. Now, let me give you eight quick positive proofs. Are you ready? Everything that you know about God, every attribute, everything that you know about him can be modified by the word holy. For instance, God's wisdom is holy wisdom. God's power is holy power. God's love is holy love. God's wrath is holy, uh, holy wrath. But you cannot do that with any other word. God does not have loving wrath, and he does not have wrathful love. But you, he does have holy love. The only word that can modify all of his attributes is the word holy. Number two, you can put the word holy in front of everything that God has ever done. Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood, the cross. What is it that prompted God to do these things? His holiness. His actions grow out of his love of righteousness and his hatred of sin, which is holiness. Number three, God is described by Job as the Holy One in Job 6, verse 10. And David describes God by the, with the same word. Holy is his name in Psalm 111, uh, verse 9. Isaiah does the same thing in 1017 and 3223, calling God holy is his name. Now, here's my point. Do you remember how David and Job are described? David is described as the man after God's own heart. Job is described in chapter 1 as blameless and perfect in all his ways. And those two men, when they addressed God, they addressed him as holy. You know what I want to suggest, ladies and gentlemen? I want to suggest that if you and I were more like David and Job, that's the way we'd talk to him. If we were more like these men who are stellar in their examples for us, we would address God, I think, like that. Number four, God prefixes in front of everything that he touches or everything with which he is identified with the word holy. Does God have a throne? Yes, a holy throne, Psalm 47, 8. Does God live on a mountain? Yes, a holy mountain, Psalm 48, 1. Does God speak? Yes, in his holiness, Psalm 60, verse 6. Does God take an oath? Yes, in his holiness, Psalm 89, 35. Does God have a, a, a house? Yes, and holiness is welcome there, Psalm 93, 5. Is there a heaven? Yes, a holy heaven, Psalm 20, verse 6. Why? Because God is there. You, you remember the story, don't you, ladies and gentlemen, about uh, Moses? He's walking around on the backside of a mountain one day and the bush begins to burn and, and speak. <laughs> and the bush is not consumed. And then the bush talks and says, Moses, take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. Why is it now holy? Because God is there. And because God is there, everything that he touches, everything that he handles, everything that he associates himself with is holy. Fifth. In the book of Isaiah, God is referred to 31 times as the Holy One of Israel. In the book of Leviticus, in that book alone, we find the word holy 
used 87 times referring to utensils, places, things, cups, couches, houses. The word love is found only twice in the book of Leviticus, and both times it's in the context of loving your neighbor. Number six, how do angels, the angels in the Bible, address God? Well, if the example is to be found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, when angels get ready to address God, they address him as holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you know what? They're still doing that. Because in the book of Revelation, uh, which is at the end of the Bible, of course, in chapter 4, verse 8, you know what they're still singing? Holy. 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 And by the way, do you know when the Bible gets ready to emphasize something, the only way that the Bible emphasizes things is by repetition. If God wants to say... Abraham, Abraham, that's emphatic. It's because of repetition. But do you know, ladies and gentlemen, that when something is taken to the second power, Abraham, Abraham, that's emphasis. But never in the Bible is anything taken to the third power. <laughs> Nothing is holy, holy, holy. The only thing that is raised to the third power is that word holiness. You never get God, anybody saying, love, 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 or merciful, 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 merciful. <laughs> it's the microphone. But you do get them saying one time, actually two times, both by angels, saying that God is not only holy, he is holy, holy. And not only is he holy, holy, but he is holy, holy. Number seven, how does Christ address God? In John 17, 11, he addresses him as Holy Father. And in John 17, 25, he addresses him as Righteous Father. Ladies and gentlemen, number eight, all of Christendom believes in a trinity. That is, if you're a Christian, you believe that God exists in three persons. One of those persons of the Godhead, who is the very essence of God and dwells inside the, the heart of every believer, is the one that we call the Hagios Pneuma, the Holy Spirit. One other thing I want you to see, and I'm finished. Turn real quickly, if you can, to Proverbs chapter 9. As you perhaps have heard me say in the past, the book of Psalms, Proverbs, is what's called Hebrew poetry. Uh, that's a section of Scripture that is known as Hebrew, the, the poets. Well, and, and in the poets, when they want to write something, they don't try to rhyme words like roses are red, violets are blue, I'm fat and you are too, or something like that. They don't do that. What they do is repeat the same ideas with different words. Now notice Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now that's his statement. That's what he wants you to know. He wants you to know that the fear of the Lord, you will begin to be wise. He comes back in the B part of the verse to repeat those, that same idea, and, and he comes to the word fear, and he says, okay, what can I use as a good synonym for fear? He uses the word knowledge. And notice at the end, I've got the word wisdom, and I want to repeat that word. What's a good word that will be a synonym 
for wisdom. Okay, understanding. Then he comes to the name Yahweh. What could I possibly use to properly represent this lofty God who is transcendent and yet imminent? What one word that will help me communicate the essence of this word, this Yahweh? What is the most appropriate, the best, the, the most fitting summary of Yahweh? And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon says, and the knowledge of the Holy One. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the things that I hope that you will always be able to expect from this pulpit, whether I'm here, whether Richard's in it, Jeff or anybody else, I hope that you can come to expect that you are going to hear about a lofty God, one that is high and lifted up, the one who at the core of his being is holy. Because if we don't know that holy one, we will never be wise. The beginning of wisdom is to know this holy one. And I say to you again, ladies and gentlemen, not only will we begin to be wise, we will begin to pray. We will begin to worship. We will begin to obey in a way that we have never known before. Why? Because God, in his triune nature, is holy. 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 Our Father, I do pray that you will take these thoughts and honor them with your, with your application. There is no one here that can make any of us change. There is no one here that can, that can even affect change in their own lives. Only you, O oh God, can sanctify us. Only you can perform the great work of sanctity in the soul. But, Father, that is our longing. Perform sanctity. Not only is Jesus our righteousness, He is our sanctification as well. We would not dream of coming into Your presence without Him. And, oh God, if there are men or women or boys or girls who are here today, who have not laid hold of this Christ, this crucified Christ, might they see today the urgency of having Christ. Christ to be their Savior and Lord. Because it is only by Him that any of us will ever stand safely in your presence. We love you, O God. We are sorry we love you so little. But our hope, our prayer is that we will love you more. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.